The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Good morning. As we continue reading through the 119th Psalm, this morning we're going to be in verses 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, we do not possess the language to adequately capture and express all that you are. And Father, when you pull back the veil and you reveal to us the heavenly things, the divine workings, your sovereign decree, Father, even what we see there, we cannot fully comprehend because you are so much higher and greater and more magnificent than anything our heart could handle. And so, Father, we are going to attempt to dip our toe into the vastness of the working of your gracious glory this morning. And I pray, Father, that you would guard my lips. I would only say the words that would honor you and build up your people. Pray that you would guard our hearts from any sinful resistance, any rebellion against your word. Father, I pray that you would sharpen our minds to embrace what you said here. Father, we ask these things not merely for our good, but ultimately for your glory. And we ask it all in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we return this morning to our verse-by-verse exposition of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As I told you last week, in nine out of Paul's 13 letters, we read some version of Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. More than just a self-identification, Paul's making clear by what authority he speaks as an apostle, one chosen by God, called, set apart, and sent out by Christ himself. Therefore, what Paul delivers to us is not the opinions of man, 
but the very word of God. That's the authority of this letter. It doesn't come from anything within Paul. We're not obligated to receive and live in accordance with these words merely because of the power of Paul's intellect or the beauty of his words. Paul's great success as a missionary and a church planner, his unwavering commitment in the middle of suffering, even his glorious heavenly experience, it is on the basis of none of these things that we find Paul's authority. The church of Christ is bound up, completely bound and obligated, held under the weight of the word of God because it comes from God himself. That God has chosen through the lips of this man called Paul, through his spirit, through his son, by his spirit, to deliver to us these words. They come from the lips, and perhaps from the pen of Paul, but they originate in the mind of God. Truly, this is the breathed out, authoritative, inerrant, sufficient word of God. Now, I realize that I have belabored that point every single week as we've come together on the Lord's Day for the last month. But dear children, we must get this right before we move any further, before we step off into these deep waters, and they are deep. We must determine, am I willing to sit under the authority of this word no matter the cost? No matter how much discomfort this word brings. Listen now, because I need to be very clear about what I'm saying. For many people, submitting to the word of God above all else may mean turning and repenting of some besetting sin in their lives. Perhaps it may mean determining right now that you will no sooner denounce the name of Christ than you would lay down your life or face imprisonment. That is very good. That's the right way for a Christian to think. But I must ask you, are you equally committed to sit under the word of God if it means not just a willingness to lay down your physical life, not just a willingness to forego some earthly pleasure, but that you might give up the right to hold on to some picture that you hold of God in your mind that you truly cherish. Dear children, there's going to be some things in this word that are going to confront much of what so many of us have been taught to believe our entire lives. The traditions the preconceived notions, and we all have them. There's not a man that doesn't come to the word of God. You can't read a greeting card without coming to it with traditions and presuppositions about what it means. Certainly we do this with the Bible. You will come here with your own previous understandings of who God is and how he works for the redemption of his people. These things will come crashing in to the, the word of this Bible. And so we must determine now Will I submit to the authority of this word above all else, even if it turns my world completely upside down? Now, I realize that for some of you, you think I'm talking in hyperbole. Think I'm over-exaggerating. You've read this Bible cover to cover every year of your adult life. You know what's here, and you're quite confident that there's nothing here that's going to change your theology one iota. And that very well may be true. I pray that it is. I'm not looking to unnecessarily upset a single one of you, but I must warn you that even for those who truly desire to sit under the full counsel of God's word, I'm talking about good and faithful brothers and sisters. I'm not trying to build a straw man here. I'm not trying to speak in overly generalized terms. I'm not trying to misrepresent anyone, but even amongst believers, good and faithful Christian men and women, 
They can have this unintentional tendency to skim past the portions of God's word that confront what they've previously believed without ever really considering what these words mean. It's like a theological blind spot. And again, friends, I speak from experience. I truly believe this to be a a defense mechanism, a wall that we put up to protect the nice, safe, predictable picture that we have of God. Things that we have previously considered to be very much settled in our minds. And if we're not careful, we will move so quickly past these portions of God's word that it's as if they were never there. So church, we must determine now that we will do everything we can to fight against this unintentional tendency to shield our words from one single portion of this word. That moves me to one more exhortation before we come to the text. For some of you, there are absolutely portions of this text that are gonna serve as trigger words for you. Firstly, I need to tell you, I didn't put them there, God did. But as soon as these particular words leave my lips and strike your ears, you're gonna be tempted to immediately declare to yourself what they cannot mean. It happens so subtly. You hear the words and then your mind runs three, st- three steps ahead. You start re- rejecting the interpretation that is presented to you of what this text means, not because the scripture demands that you accept some other understanding, not because the scripture warrants that you reject what I'm saying, but because your mind tells you that if X is true, then so is Y and Z. And your mind and your heart cannot bear the full implications of what that might mean. So I say this with all love and charity and respect possible. One of the greatest enemies to good, solid theology is putting boundaries about what you're willing to be true about God because you fear the implications. We must never come to the word of God and say, if that's who God is, then I won't follow him. I refuse to believe that God can be like this. Difference, this comes from a good place. I understand this. This comes from a heart that wants to defend God. This comes from a heart that fears that God might be being misrepresented. And so again, for the millionth time, I say test what I say about the scriptures, but do not come to the scriptures and set boundaries about what the scriptures can say is true about God. I promise you this happens to the best of us. But we must come to the word and allow it to do the work. That's why we work through text the way we do. Verse by verse, word by word, Phrase by phrase, stopping at each stage to ask, what does this text mean before running on to the implications? Of course, we study Scripture in context. We don't take any passage in a vacuum. We allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We allow the clear things to tell us how to understand the unclear things. But we must take great care that it is only the Scripture that defines what this word means. That anything from out here, our minds, our traditions, our fears, our philosophies, that there's nothing out here that we bring to the scripture that then we allow to set restrictions and boundaries on who God can be. We must recognize it. We must spot the tendency. Then we must fight against it. We must come to the scripture praying that God will allow us to hear it anew, like we're hearing it for the very first time, trusting that he wants us to know what this means. Now, church, we're gonna move on to the text. 
That's my last exhortation in this area. I've now spent four weeks on this area. Some of you are growing weary. But I feel that we must plant a flag, a marker, something that we can draw our minds back to as we wade off into these waters because we're going to get going now. And as we start heading through these waters, there's going to be times when you're going to get scary and you're going to need to look back to the shore and you're going to need to see a lighthouse. You're going to need to see a marker. You're going to need to see something that reminds you, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be here. I'm right where God wants me to be. It's okay. He's going to see me through this. He has brought me here. He is revealing himself. And on the backside of this, my theology will either stand and be strengthened or it will crumble and it was never worth having in the first place. So, we return to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I ask you to stand to your feet, please. Reverence to reading of God's word. And this is the sufficient, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God. Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Father, we are trusting you by the working of your spirit to help us rightly discern your word. So we ask you to do that now for our good and your glory in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So having studied who Paul is two weeks ago and then coming together on the last Lord's Day and asking the question, what does it mean to be an apostle of Christ Jesus? I would like to now direct your attention to that third phrase there, by the will of God. This Jewish man, this Jewish man who is by birth a Roman citizen, this man called Paul, he is now an apostle of Christ Jesus and it is by the will of God. Now, this seems like a fairly straightforward statement, by the will of God. This is one of those that if you're just casually reading through your Bibles, you come to the statement, by the will of God, I know what every single one of those words mean and I simply move on without any further examination. But if we slow down, if we seek to truly be students of the word, cherishing this word, desiring in it to see the face of God, the glory revealed in the face of Christ Jesus, then we'll come to the, we'll come to the scripture not just with some questions, and we do that. We come to the scripture with questions. Who wrote this? To whom did he write it? We've worked through those questions. But then as we read, as we work through the text, we're going to make observations of it as we go. I've heard many of men, they've compared the word of God to a diamond. You take it in your hand. You hold it up to the light and you turn it, examining it, allowing the light to hit it from all different angles and just basking in the beauty. And then you take note of what you see. What sticks out to me? What questions do I have? What statements here might require of me some greater work that I dig a little bit deeper and truly try to understand what he's saying? Where do I need clarification? Now, dear friends, this takes great patience and humility. We cannot come to the word. We won't do this rightly if we come to the word assuming already off the bat that we know what it means. In addition to this, it requires discipline. It requires a hunger to know God as he really is more than to feel comfortable and be proven right. So in my studies, in an effort to live by the words that I preached, I came to these words and I read them and I read them and I read them and I wrote down observations and I kept being drawn back to these words, four words in English, three words in Greek, 
by the will of God. And I began to ask myself, how am I supposed to understand the connection between God's will and Paul's apostleship? So you'll hear me often say, particularly if you come on Wednesday nights, you've probably often heard me say that those little bitty connecting words are often key to understanding Paul's flow of thought. So I want you to look at the word right there. By. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. It's the Greek preposition dia. It can also be translated as through. In this context, the lexical meaning is the efficient cause or the agency of something, and I think that's helpful. It tells us here that the determining factor, the reason the thing happens, the driving force, the efficient cause of Paul's apostleship is the will of God. Are you following me? How did Paul become an apostle of Christ Jesus? What happened? He was charging hard on the road to Damascus. He hated Christ, he hated the church, and he sought to destroy her. He was going to arrest and, if necessary, execute followers of Jesus Christ, and then boom, the glory of God floods his life. Right there on that very same road, Jesus Christ, he interrupts Paul's life, completely transforming this man. The old Paul dies, and in his place stands a new creation, madly in love with Christ Jesus, and determined he's going to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. So how did Paul become uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ? By means of the overpowering grace of God. God stepped in and transformed this man's life, bringing him to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's the how. That's the instrumental cause. But why? Why did that happen? That's the question that Paul's answering for us here. What was the efficient cause? Why did God bust into Paul's life like this? Why did God bring Paul to this point and call him to be an apostle? Why is Paul now writing to the church in Ephesus these words that we read today? That's what Paul's telling us. Why? The why is the will of God. God's will is the why. The ultimate reason that Paul is now an apostle of Christ Jesus is because God willed it. This wasn't random. This wasn't the will of Paul. This wasn't the will of the church. God didn't ask Paul's permission. Paul didn't first take steps towards God. God didn't step back and wait to see how Paul would respond. At a time when we least expected any of these things to happen, by the gracious working of God, Paul was overwhelmed. And in that moment, we find that the causal determinant, the reason, the why that Paul stands as apostle of Christ Jesus is the will of God. That would seem to very much match up with the words that Paul gave us. You remember as we read through those introductions to his letters last week, I return you to Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men. That's that same word, dia. Not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul is not an apostle because of men. Paul didn't apply for apostleship, and the church didn't take a vote. It was because of, it was through, it was bound up in the will of God as executed through Christ Jesus. Over and over again in the epistles, particularly in his writings to the Galatians, we're going to find Paul very heavily focusing on this. This reality, this was not the will of man. This was all of God. I'm not an apostle because I desired it. I'm not an apostle because the church desired it. None of these things came about because of the willing of man. Not only because apostleship is not a thing that man can hand out like candy, but because none of the men involved initially desired it. The church was repulsive to Paul. He hated Christ. 
He hated followers of Christ. He thought that they were truly an abomination, an offense to God worthy of death. He did not see any opportunity for power or prestige. He had all of that. Paul was very much secure and comfortable with his place in the world, and he very much believed himself to be right with God, an ambassador with God, an upholder of God and his law. Paul hated the church, and he hated her apostles. And the church certainly would not have enlisted Paul to apostleship if left to themselves, even if they believed they had the right. They were terrified of this man. Do you remember what happened when Paul came and tried to be with the church? Acts 9, 26. Then when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They didn't believe in his conversion. They thought that he was a fake disciple until Barnabas comes along, and he's able to tell these men. He's able to assure them of the fruit, the transformed life that he's seen in this man called Paul. So, Dear brothers, I believe that it is safe to say that it was not the will of anyone on earth for Paul to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And surely you see the importance of this. If our obligation to this word is bound up in Paul's apostleship, if we're obligated to live and abide by and sit under the weight of this word expressly because Paul has been called and set apart and chosen to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, then it's critical not only that we know that he is an apostle, but how he became one. That the authority entrusted to him did not come from man, nor from the will of man, but that it originated, that it was carried out by God. That his authority was not mediated by the other apostles. They couldn't take it back from him. The church couldn't demand that Paul was no longer an apostle. Again, I say this apostolic authority, the calling, the sending, even the message that he proclaimed, it came directly from God. Has there ever been a clearer picture of what Jesus said in John 15, 16, when he said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And so we see this playing out in the account of Paul's conversion. Again, I'd call you back to the account that he shared is sometime later, years later, in Acts 26, he says that he cried out when he was there, blinded on the road, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness. Paul was an apostle by the will of God. So that brings us to our second question. How then are we to understand the will of God? If this thing, if the will of God is the efficient cause, if it's the why of something so very critical as this, then surely we should desire to know all we can about it. Think about it. Our salvation. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul would use this man to carry the gospel in what was previously a great mystery to the Gentile world, to those that were without hope and without God in the world. Paul would use this man to deliver to us this beautiful present. The gift of salvation begins at this moment right here for the Gentile people. And so, if something so wonderful as this is bound up in this reality, by the will of God, this tremendous blessing comes to us, then shouldn't we do all that we can to understand? What does Paul mean when he uses that phrase, by the will of God? So in addition to this introduction to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we find the word that's translated there, will, used seven times. Thelema is the word in Greek. Now, there's other words that are also translated as will from Greek, but you'll see them often used almost interchangeably. And so I had to pick a lane, because if we have any hope of fitting this sermon within the time that we've allotted, 
which seems to be stretching by the week. But if we have any hope of fitting this sermon within the time allotted, I had to pick one word, and this was the word that Paul used. And so it seems good to me that we would start here and we would trace this word through Scripture. And it seemed to me that if we're going to trace Paul's usage of this word through Scripture, shouldn't we begin in the very same letter that he used it? So again, I say there's seven times that we find this word used. On one of those occasions, Paul talks not of the will of God, but of the will of man. So it may not be particularly helpful to us, but we can go there anyways and look. I think we get some idea of the way, at least in part, that Paul uses this word. It's translated as will. So we look at Ephesians 2, 3. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to move back and forth a little bit just within this letter. But you look there to Ephesians 2, 3. And we see it's Paul is talking about the state of man before he comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the, the estate of natural man. He says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. That's the word there. That's the same word that he translated as will, thelema, the desires of the body and will. Now, we all understand this sense of the will, don't we? It's a thing that we desire. It's a thing that we long for. It's a thing that seems right to us. You see a thing, you want the thing. You wish for it, you desire for it. I think that's the most common way that we use the term will, isn't it? That's what I will. But does God, excuse me, does Paul, or does God through Paul, ever use that same sense of the word will with regards to himself? Well, it certainly seems like it. Turn to Ephesians 5. Look at Ephesians 5.15. The most precious sound to any pastor in all the world is the rustling of papers in the Bible. I could record that and play it on a loop. Ephesians 5.15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be foolish, but walk as, and walk as unwise people. Understand what the will of the Lord is. The wise man will endeavor to know and understand God's desires and then to walk in them. Flip to the very next chapter, Ephesians 6. It appears as though Paul uses the will of God in this very same fashion there. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters as you would obey Christ, not merely when they're watching you so that you can get an attaboy or a reward or a pat on the back, but as a slave to Christ, doing the will of God, doing that which God desires from your own heart. So it seems to me, that at least in some instances, the Apostle Paul uses this word will in a very similar way to the way that we use it about ourselves, meaning the thing that God desires. Namely, the thing that God desires for his people to do. Let me show you a couple of other passages that Paul uses in other books that I think might help round this out a little bit. Romans 12, 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God is a thing that can be discerned, understood, known by man through testing. 
that unlike the sinful and selfish and evil desires of men, the will of God is good and perfect and right, and we can grow in the understanding of this as we are transformed in the renewing of our mind. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So we're given a little bit more of a concrete picture here, something to hold on to with regards to what is the will of God. The will of God is your sanctification. That through the apostles' teaching, God has given specific instructions, specific revelation in terms of what his will is. Abstain from sexual immorality. God's will, his desire is our sanctification. Part of God's will and his desire in our sanctification is that we abstain from um, sexual immorality. He has told us these areas of his will, and therefore we're obliged to live by it. You get in the picture? We, Paul sing, we see Paul using almost his exact same word in the same fashion just in the very next chapter. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You're starting to understand now, aren't you? People often want to say, I wish I just knew what God's will for my life is. Here you go. You go to the scriptures. God's not playing hide and seek. He says expressly in his word, my desire is your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you walk in holiness, that you rejoice in all things, that you're constantly in prayer, that you're always giving thanks to God for all that he is. This is God's will for us. And this was a consistent prayer of Paul on behalf of his church. There's a beautiful prayer in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, when he goes on about this, that his desire for the saints is they would come to a knowledge and an understanding and obedience to the will of God, that God might be glorified, that we might fulfill our purpose as those that are being made holy as a bride of Christ, that that's his desire, that he expresses his desire and then calls us to walk in that will to his glory, and that because he has given us these commandments, because he has expressed his will, we will answer to him for how we have lived in light of those. We see Jesus speaking in very similar terms. Think about Matthew 7, 21, when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, don't get sidetracked. Man cannot fully do the will of God. There is no perfect doing of the will of God. Man cannot earn his way into the kingdom of God. We are wholly dependent upon another. It is only in Jesus Christ and his doing that anyone has access to the kingdom. And yet, for those that are his, by the working of his spirit, we will know and strive to walk in his will, knowing and doing the will of God. But now I must present to you the flip side of this. You see, God has expressed his will. The will of God is that you walk in obedience to him. The will of God is that you abstain from sexual immorality. The will of God is that you don't lie, that you don't dishonor your parents, that you don't take his name in vain, that you do not murder, that you do not covet. The will of God is that you love him with everything that you are and everything that you have. The will of God is that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. So how are you doing with that? Are you rejoicing in all things? You praying without ceasing? Are you, are you ever failing to give thanks to God? I'm not. And so then clearly I must say that every single day I am refusing the will of God. I'm rejecting the will of God. This isn't because I don't know his desires. I'm not ignorant. He's expressed them in the scriptures. 
He's revealed them. It's because he's given me the ability either to do his will through the working of his spirit or to reject his will. You understand? We see this literally all over the Bible. God calls his people to do things or don't do other things. He expresses his will, and oftentimes God's will doesn't happen. In that same letter to the Thessalonians, right after his call to abstain from sexual immorality, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 to 8, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. God's will is for our holiness. When we disregard this call to holiness, we're not disregarding the commandments of men. We're not disregarding the will of men. We're disregarding the will of God. We're rejecting the will of God. But when we do, when we live in holiness, when we walk in obedience to his word, we are doing the will of God. And so we ask, is that all that Paul means here when he says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God? Is Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus because God expressed his will for Paul to be an apostle? And on this occasion, Paul decided to do the will of God. Well, it's certainly true that, Paul, that God expressed his desire for Paul to be an apostle, didn't he? He called him on the road. He told him where to go. And we don't exactly see Paul putting up a fight, do we? Yes, Paul was blinded and shook, but there weren't really any questions or requests of God, were they? God told him, get up, go to the city, and there you'll be told what to do. What did Paul do? He got up, he went to the city, and he waited there to be told what to do. But what was the determining factor? What was the efficient cause? What was the reason that all of this took place? Was it merely Paul's willingness to do the will of God? But well, we're not done looking at the way that that word thelema is used even in Ephesians yet. We've looked at the first two there, excuse me, the first three, but the other four. We looked in chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 6. The other four, they're all found there together in chapter 1. We find them in a successive series here. And they all speak of God's will, not the will of man. Ephesians 5. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through, there's that dia word again, through Jesus Christ according to, to the purpose of his will. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself. There's a trigger word, and so I'm asking you, don't run ahead. Don't try to figure out all the things that this means about salvation and who is saved and who not is saved. That's not the purpose of what we're doing here. That's not the purpose of this first verse of Ephesians. We will handle that in due time when God leaves us there. But stick with me where we are. I just want you to notice the connection. God has predestined some people to something. And surely we all agree that anything that God has predestined, you can use the word foreordained if that makes you more comfortable. But there's nothing that God has foreordained that doesn't happen, is there? No one believes this. Whatever you believe, God has predestined. Whatever you believe the purpose is for his predestining, we all can agree that anything that God predestines, anything that God foreordains, it will come to pass. As the sovereign God of the universe, God predestines it. It's guaranteed to happen. And that's what God's saying. This predestining, this thing, it will happen through Christ and in accordance with the purpose of his will. Do you see the connection? Do you see the connection between the purpose of his will and the predestining foreordained thing that is guaranteed to happen? Now hold on to that. Just go down the page a little bit. Ephesians 1.7. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He talks here about the mystery of his will. Remember now, whenever Paul uses the word mystery, he doesn't mean a thing that can't be known or even a thing that's only known to a select few. He's talking about a thing that can't be known unless God reveals it. And then as he reveals it to the apostles, they can't wait to share it with the rest of the saints. God has revealed this mystery, this mystery of his will, this previously unknown thing handed to Paul and delivered to us. But look what he's saying here, that his will, that it's according to his purpose, this thing which he has planned and intended and brings about in Christ, it is all bound up in his will, that God's will is a thing completely in himself, that God is in no way beholden to man, God is in no way dependent upon man. God is in no way reliant upon anything that man wills or works out in and of himself. We look around us. Listen, we hold on to this truth, don't we? That God is planning and willing, and in the end, all things will be wrapped up in Christ. And so we look around us at a world that seems to be just filled with nothing but darkness, rebellion and hatred for God and yet we continually come back to this promise we know that all things will be united in Christ precisely because it is the will of God and the will of God always comes to pass then going down the page just a little bit more perhaps the most straightforward statement with regards to the will of God in all the Bible very next verse Ephesians 1:11. in Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now again, I ask you, don't start running out all the implications just yet. Just look at your Bibles. In this context, in the flow of all that Paul is saying here, ask yourself, what is God saying? What does he mean by what he says? God is talking about things that he has predestined and foreordained. He's talking about things that he has sovereignly decreed will come to pass. These things that are guaranteed to happen according to his counsel and his purpose and his plan. That God is working all these things in accordance with the counsel of his will. Do you feel the weight of this? It's as absolute as you can get. If God wills a thing to happen, it happens. If he doesn't will a thing to happen, it doesn't happen. I'm going to show you a few more texts that I hope will drive this point home. Isaiah 46, verse 9. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Psalm 115, 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Romans 9, 19. Paul says to his opponent, to this man that is resisting even Paul's teaching, he says, you will say to, them, say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist God's will? The implied answer there is, no one. No one. Dear friends, you've got to understand that this is one of the most basic confessions, one of the most basic understandings of who God is. This isn't necessarily a thing that, that divines reformed thinkers from non-reformed thinkers. That what does it mean for God to be God? It means the things that he wills will happen. Nothing is left up to chance. And at no time is God in heaven wringing his hands, hoping that we choose to play along with his plan. 
Scripture is undeniably clear. The will of God is guaranteed to happen. In God's sovereignty, according to his wise and good counsel, since before the foundation of the world, the hidden, the secret will of God, that will that is in his mind, it is not fully revealed to us. At certain times it will be. He will reveal his will at times and show us these things that are coming to pass. And yet we must know that this sovereign will of God, this decreed will of God, it is unbreakable, it is irresistible, it is efficacious. According to Hebrews 6.17, it is unchangeable. God will bring to pass the things that he wills to happen. And he is in no way relying upon man to accomplish his purpose. Simply by sheer force of his will. As the omnipotent God of the universe, everything that God wills happens. And at the same time, God speaks with equally clear language about the God of will that is revealed to us. It is not hidden. It is expressed in his will and his commandments. Unlike his hidden will, we are accountable. We are held accountable for how we uphold this will. And God has given his children the ability to either reject or to do his will. That sometimes scripture speaks very plainly about the fact that God's will will not happen. So it would appear that we have an incredible paradox here. Quite the conundrum. How can God's will be hidden and sovereign and guaranteed in literally everything that happens and at the same time God's will is revealed to man and he is able to reject it? Seems to me that there are three possibilities. The first two are really wrapped up in the mindset that what we read there in Ephesians 1.11 and the other text, and I could give you dozens. If you need more, please come see me. But that what we see there with regards to absolute statements that all that God wills will be done, that it's hyperbole. That God is trying to bring about his will in all areas, but man is somehow thwarting that will. Most people don't hold to that mindset, but some perhaps do. God is trying his best to bring about his will, but man just won't seem to play along. The other much more likely belief is that God is bringing about his will, still speaking in hyperbolic terms with regards to all things being under the counsel of his will, but that the reason that's not true is that there are certain aspects of humanity that God has chosen not to impose his will upon. There are certain things that God has just sovereignly decided he's going to take his hands off of. But beloved, there's a third understanding. That's that there are at least two wills of God. I don't mean that God is schizophrenic or divided in his purpose or desire. I don't mean that God can't make up his mind about what he wants to do. I don't mean that God is somehow going along and deciding on a whim whether he's going to impose his will or not impose his will. I'm talking about two rather distinct things, two types of wills within God, that both of them are according to his purpose, that both of them are fulfilling his plan, that both of them are working in connection with his sovereignty, that God is in no way frustrated, God is in no way limited. God is in no way self-limiting. And yet that there's two very real ways that God can speak about his will that can both be called his will. Dear friends, I think we see this all throughout Scripture. In my mind, I have no option but to hold to this based on the revelation of Scripture. That God speaks about his will in at least two very distinct ways. There's what we might call the will of command, the perceptive will of God. That is God's expressed desire. What he tells us we're to do the will that we're required to uphold and the will by which we will be judged. We'll be called to give an account. 
Man is obligated to know and uphold this will, but that God has allowed his people to either do it or reject it, but that then superintending, superintending even that over and above and sovereign over even that is what we might call the will of decree. God's hidden, his sovereign, that will which is guaranteed to come to pass. You might call it his efficacious will. This is a will that man has zero ability to thwart or to overthrow. He offers almost no resistance to this, God's decreative will. God will accomplish all things, all things that come to pass, they fall under the umbrella, under the sovereignty, under the decreed will of God, even those times when men choose to reject his commanded will. We'll unpack this more fully as we move through this and in the weeks to come. I, we can only dip our toes in the water today, and I imagine I'll get a lot of phone calls this week, and I welcome them because we're planting a seed today that's going to torment some of you in the days to come, and I promise you on the other side of it is joy. So you come to me when these things get tough, when they just won't let go of your mind. But just for this moment, I want you to hear me. I want you to see how God has spoken so explicitly in both of these two terms because if you don't take time to fully consider it, if you don't really meditate on it and embrace it and grasp the difference between the two, if whenever you come to the phrase the will of God in Scripture and you don't take time to dig and analyze and ask in what way is God speaking of his will here, then you're going to find great difficulty in receiving and understanding large portions of the Scriptures. There's going to be pieces that are always going to feel disjointed. I was talking to a brother the other night, and he said it's almost like you're looking down upon a rail yard, and there's all these train cars that aren't connected. You know that they're all of God, but you see no way that they could possibly all come together and run along one track. But once you embrace this, it's like they start to link up. It starts to make sense. But I must tell you that there are large swaths of the Christian community, because they don't understand and embrace this, They've been led to believe that perhaps God's will can be thwarted. God is not truly sovereign over all things. Or he has chosen to limit himself in places that scripture explicitly says he has not limited himself. Particularly where he says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so before we move on to these possible implications, let us return to Ephesians 1.1 and come back to the question. And what way does Paul use the phrase, the will of God, to speak about his standing as an apostle of Christ Jesus? Was this merely the will of command? Is Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus simply because God called and Paul responded, or is it the decree of God? Was this a thing that was guaranteed to happen because of the hidden and sovereign will of God? I think we can turn to his letter to the Colossians and we can see very clearly. What you'll find is that many of the very same themes, much of the same language that we find in Paul's letter to the Ephesians is mirrored in his letter to the, uh, uh, letter to the Galatians. Excuse me. Colossians. Thank you. Can I just tell you, sometimes preaching, it feels like, you ever seen anybody get inside of one of those money chambers and there's money that's going up and they're, and they're trying to grab all the money and they end up with none of the money? That's preaching sometimes. You've got a million good words that you want and you feel like you're in a dogfight of your life just trying to grab one decent one. Paul says this. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, God had called him, set him apart from before he was born. Do you catch that? 
This is not a thing that God determined on the fly. This is not a thing that God was waiting to see how Paul would respond. This was the sovereign will of God, decreed before he was even born. I submit to you decreed before the foundation of the world. But explicitly, before Paul was even born, it was a done deal. He was set apart to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Does this mean that God did not call Paul by will of command? No, he did. God called Paul. God revealed his son to Paul. This one who had once seemed to Paul to be the devil. This one that was a curse, detested by Paul, a man worthy of destruction, suddenly became Paul's Lord and Master. Paul wanted to follow Jesus Christ more than anything else in all the world. Paul made the choice. Read through his letters. Paul loved Jesus Christ more than anything else in all the world. He had seen Jesus Christ and he said, I will devote my life to following him to honoring him. As a matter of fact, he says, you add up everything else in all the world and I count it as dung compared to Jesus Christ whom I previously hated. I love him. I want him. I chase after him. I will suffer for him. I want desperately for you to know him. Paul wanted Christ. More than anything else, he wanted Christ. He came freely and willingly and joyfully. And the decisive reason? The effective cause? was the sovereign will of God. I can come to no other conclusion that Paul, a man called Paul, he freely chose to do God's will. I'm talking about his coming to Jesus Christ, his obedience to the call to get up and go to Damascus, his obedience to go to the ends of the earth and carry the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can come to no no other conclusion that this man called Paul desired to do what God commanded ultimately because God willed it. Were there other secondary earthly causes? Of course. Might Paul have eaten some breakfast that morning that played into this? I don't know. There's something about this route that played into it? Possibly. Possibly. But there can only be one ultimate and decisive cause, and that is the sovereign will of God. Don't believe me just because I said it. Test me against the scriptures, but don't reject me just because it hurts your heart. Test yourself against the scriptures. Ask yourself if that's not what Paul has said. If that's not what the whole of scripture demands that you believe. And so now we're ready for some implications. If my understanding of this is correct, if Paul coming and freely choosing to follow Jesus Christ His choosing to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, to heed this call, to uphold God's commandment, to walk in obedience to him, if this was all precisely because it was sovereignly, unalterably decreed by God, what are the implications? One question we might ask is, could Paul have said no? Could Paul have rejected the call to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? Well, God certainly didn't turn Paul into a robot. God didn't pick up Paul and forcibly carry him to Damascus. God didn't put a gun to Paul's back and force him out into the wilderness. Now, the interaction was certainly dramatic and powerful, but Paul simply could have just sat there on the road and died. Paul could have refused to eat and refused to drink and died. And Paul would have answered to God for this. As God had revealed his will, and he had the ability, he retained the ability to pursue whatever seemed right to him. Paul retained the ability to do what seemed best to his own heart. And this is why Paul will answer to God for the decisions that he makes. So in this sense, yes, Paul was absolutely free to reject the apostolic calling. But if God set Paul apart from before he was born, if it was the sovereign and efficacious and unalterable will of God, 
the true and ultimate cause of Paul's apostleship had been set before the foundation of the world, then could Paul have said no? Was he decisively free? Did he have any kind of ultimate self-determination in this moment? If God before the foundation of the world had willed it, and all that God wills is guaranteed to happen. Here's the deal. Go back to Ephesians 1.11. I don't want to say everything that I have to say about this. Te- it's, it's so tempting. If I teach you everything about Ephesians 1.11, I won't have anything to say when we finally come to it in the year 2023. And so maybe you've forgotten it all by then. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this is where things get scary. Dear friends, he means all. All things. Everything. Even the free choices of men. It is God who is working in them according to the sovereignty of his will his plan, his purposes, his wise counsel. I go back to what I said earlier. Ultimately, Paul willed to honor God in this apostolic calling because God had decreed it before Paul was born. I know how difficult that is to grasp, but again, I tell you, Paul wasn't a robot. He made real choices with real consequences, and that's what's necessary for man to be responsible before God. What does it take for a man to be responsible for his choices? He has to be able to make those choices in accordance with what seems right to him, what he wills, what he desires in his heart. And from this moment on, the Apostle Paul, he desired Jesus Christ more than life itself. This was Paul's will, and it was Paul's will in accordance with the unchanging will of God. We're quite comfortable with this in some settings, aren't we? The fact that God is sovereign over all things, the fact that all things work in accordance with the counsel of God's will. We're comfortable with this when we talk about inanimate objects like uh, Proverbs 16:33, when we say that the, the casting of lots or that the rolling of dice, seemingly random things, that God is sovereign over these. Job 5:10, when we learn that God is in sovereign control, that he wills when it will rain and when it will not. Matthew 10, 29, where it says that God oversees even the death of a tiny sparrow. Daniel 2, 21, when we learn that he sets up kings and then he tears down nations. We're mostly okay with these truths because they feel impersonal and non-evasive. But we've been taught for long portions of our life, we've believed that when it comes to the hearts and wills of men, God leaves us to ourselves because to do otherwise would be to discount or to discredit any love we have for him. You will hear people say, and you yourself may have said, Would you truly be happy if you had to do something in your wife's heart to cause her to love you? Would that really be love? And we've been trained to believe that while God might interfere, he might cause the earth to stand still in its rotation so that the sun will stay in the sky so that Joshua and the Israelites can win a battle. While he might raise a dead man to life, that when it comes to the wills and the hearts of men, it is ultimately man who is sovereign and not God. But listen to Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God turns the hearts of kings wherever he wills. Ezra 6.22, we read about the Jewish people. They've returned from exile at the helping of pagan kings. They've returned from exile. They've now rebuilt the temple. They're, they're, They're in the temple celebrating the Passover. And we read that the Lord had made them joyful 
and the Lord had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he would aid them in the work of the house of God. God had sovereignly decreed, he had prophesied it hundreds of years before that his people would return from exile, that they would rebuild the temple, that they would celebrate the Passover. In order to bring this to pass, he turned the heart of the king. Do you understand? He turned the heart of the king that the king would sincerely desire to do what he did. But it was God's hand who did the turning. Do you see the picture? In the experience of the king, did he feel God's hand upon his heart? Probably not. He did what seemed right to him. It seemed right to him to return the people to Israel. It seemed right to him to give them the letters that they needed to have safe passage and receive the materials they needed. It seemed right to him that he allowed them to celebrate the Passover. He did what seemed right to him, and it seemed right to him because God turned his heart, because God had decreed it in accordance with his will. So could the king have rejected this? Could the king have decided otherwise? Again, no one put a gun to his head. He was the king, the king of the most powerful nation in all the world. But God had decreed it. So he turned the king's heart to guarantee that it would happen. This does not merely apply to the kings of, uh, hearts of kings, common men too. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans its way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Again, man heart, man's heart plans. He goes after what he most desires. He's allowed to chase after what he wills. He's making real choices and real decisions according with what he can see and what he believes best. That's why each man will give an account of his life. But it is God who superintends, who governs, who ordains, who wills all of it. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the minds of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Are you getting to, starting to see this? Think about what James says. He admonishes us. It gets a presumption that we know what tomorrow will hold, that we can determine what's going to come next. He tells us that we're to say, James 4, 15, if the Lord wills it, we will live and do this or that. Now, this doesn't mean that God has to take our life to change our course, although we know based on Psalm 139 that God has numbered the days of our life before there was even one. How's that for invasive? And yet we know that we wake up in the morning and we say, this seems right to me. I shall go to this town. I shall do this business. I shall make this profit. And God says, only if I will it. Only if I have ordained it. Only if I have decreed it. Only in accordance with my will will you even take one step today in the direction that seems right to your heart. Dear friends, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus because he was blinded and confronted and called by Jesus Christ himself. And from that day forward, he wanted nothing more than that. He saw in Christ Jesus his ultimate hope, his only treasure. And he gave himself wholly and fully to that, freely. And all of this happened because before the foundation of the world, the God of the universe sovereignly decreed it would be so. Do you see the beauty in this? Do you understand why I've chosen to talk about this right now and not wait till any of the other uses of God's will? Do you understand why I've chosen to talk about this right now and not waiting till we get to verse 11? Because I want you to be able to segregate it from all the other things that we're gonna have to go through to get there. As soon as we start talking about salvation, all the what ifs come running in. All the emotions come running in. All the fears start running in. I'm trying to catch you right now while you're fresh. I'm trying to catch you right now saying, does God's word say this? Not the what ifs, 
Don't run out all the implications. Does God or does God not say in his word, all things happen in accordance with my will? Not the teaching of one verse, the teaching of all of scripture. And will you submit to that even if all the implications are true? You determine that now, not in the scary moments. And dear friends, I'm promising you right now that on the other side of this, this is a big scary hall that you're standing on this side of for some of you. You're standing in a big scary hall and you've been warned not to go down that hall. How many of you heard it this week? I sure did. You're supposed to be afraid of what I'm teaching you. You're supposed to be terrified. So terrified, you would, you'd be a fool to even sit and listen to it. You better pack up and run. Isn't that what you've been told? Dear brothers, I'm telling you, you're standing on the edge of a terrifying hall. I'm telling you, on the other side of this, it's joy and worship and assurance, the likes of which you could never imagine. When you recognize that when the God of the universe says, I work all things for your good as my people, he means all things. He doesn't just mean I'm going to wrap it all up in the end, just trust me. Yeah, it's going to be really bad from here to there, but I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to do some good things in the end. He says, right now I'm doing good for you. So the apostle Paul could walk walk through all the suffering that came in his life, and he must say, God has willed this, or it will not have come, and therefore I can face it with courage, with joy, with zeal to do that which he has revealed to me. Do you understand? I promise you on the other side of this, I promise you on the other side of this, there is more joy than you could ever imagine. You will not find God to be a monster You will not find yourself to be a robot. You will find yourself truly free, maybe for the first time in your life. And you'll find as you look to the life of a man like Paul, you begin to really, for the first time, recognize this is why he says, I have nothing to boast in. It is truly all of God. I've had some kids this week ask me, what does it mean to be a Calvinist? A number of children. I had one that stopped me right after worship. What does it mean to be a Calvinist? I'm going to go Google it. And I said, don't do that. It's just going to have a picture of Beelzebul right there. What does it mean to be a Calvinist? And I say, this. You've got all these pictures, all these five points, all these things. You don't know what it means to be a Calvinist. I believe scripture means what it says when it says that God is sovereign in all things. All things and that there is nothing man can do to escape his sovereign hand there is nothing man can do we can't sin badly enough and then look back at God and go nanana boo boo you can't touch me here it also means that in the middle of my sin I don't look to God and say well I guess I've ruined your plans for my life it means I can rejoice in the cross of Jesus Christ and knowing that even the sins of those wicked men even the sins that took the life of his son were ordained by God for our salvation And yet at no time is God the author of evil. At no time has God caused evil. That God is good and gracious and right and just and he is working all things for our good. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for your sovereignty. Father, when we sit down and we list who you are, we list your love, we list your mercy, we list list your grace, and all these things are true and they are right and they are good and we celebrate them. Father, we love you for these things. 
But Father, we must recognize that apart from your sovereign hand working in all things, that those attributes, your goodness, your mercy, your grace, your will, that there would be times when we were outside of their reach. Whether because you had self-imposed it or because we had imposed it. Father, were you not fully sovereign in all things, there would be places in this universe that we could go that your hand would not touch. And that's a terrifying thing for your children. So we praise you for this, and we praise you that in your sovereign decree you willed to call this man called Paul, that you have saved him, that you have called him out of darkness, and that you have used him to deliver this wonderful message to us today. Father, I pray your blessing on these people. Father, these are hard things. These are hard things. Just because a thing is true does not make it simple or easy. And yet, Father, I pray that you would remove any anxiety from their heart, that this would drive them deeper into the scriptures, that they would be encouraged and strengthened and emboldened by what they find there. Father, I pray that we would be bound together as a people. Our love for each other would grow. Our fellowship would flourish. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.